Welcome to Sport and Life with Sam Kegovich and Leon Wiegard with the compliments of Michelin Wines, the print, Shiraz. Can't do any better than that. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Leon, and uh, so aptly termed. It is the absolute uh, behemoth of the wine industry, isn't it? The print. Now, there's a, there's a word, behemoth. I was going to use that. I, <laughs> I, did, I did Latin at school. That didn't come up. Not that I remember. Uh, well, when you get chicken. Yes, I understand you've been a, a naughty boy this week. Uh, we've got a very special guest today, Sam. Herb Elliott is, well, there's no doubt about it, the best miler ever. Uh, won the gold medal in, uh, in uh, 1960, of course, in Rome. And uh, also got Cardiff in the Commonwealth Games two years earlier and retired far, far too young for his own reasons. We'll find out about that right now as we say good morning to Herb Elliott. Good day, Herb. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Yeah, and you too. And uh, lovely. I know you don't do too many of these things, but it's just terrific for you to uh, make yourself available yeah. for Sam and I. That's okay. I mean, most people are not that interested or they, they weren't alive or not in, <laughs> not in their countries. No. Um, so about, about once every four years, they drag a skeleton out of the cupboard uh, coinciding with the Olympic Games usually, so I'm assuming you two have just filled that gap left by the Olympic Games. Yes, is... yes. Uh, Leon, he just shares a common trait with all champions, humility, doesn't he? Yeah. Like you well, and I. He... <laughs> uh, he, he, he's a star. Well, look, the, the, the point I just made earlier, Herb, the, the early retirement from athletics, because I think you're only 22 or 3, weren't you? Yes, something like that. Um, I often get asked the question, well, just after I retired, uh, people were running around the place looking to get a, a race between Peter Snell and myself. Snell, the great New Zealander who won the gold medal in the 1500 metres uh, in, in the Olympics after me. And uh, people see that race. And when I uh, retired, they said, oh, gee, you whipped out. <laughs> but uh, I was looking forward to retirement. The thing is that through Percy, my coach, I learned that uh, if you want to win a, a, a world championship or be the best in the world or something, uh, you can't stuff around. You can't namby-pamby it. Uh, you can't find soft patches in it. It's it's a tough gig. And, um, you know, I'd wake up in the mornings and knowing I had to go for a run before work. Um, and it, it sort of, yeah, you just you didn't look forward to the runs once you got into them. They were okay. But... I don't enjoy pain, so you know, every time you went into a training session, it was taking yourself to the to the to your boundary, to your edges, and trying to push the edges out all the time. So it's a pretty, you know, if you're really fair dinkum about it, it's a very intense process from day to dawn, from the, and occupies your mind all the time. Um, so eventually, it gets to the point where the satisfaction you get out of it. Um, isn't isn't larger than the pain. The pain becomes larger than the satisfaction. You get sick of it. That's what happened. I mean, I suppose if I, in the world of professional athletes, and I was pulling in a few million a year to feed my six kids and my wife, um, I would have stayed on. But uh, we were amateurs in those days, and if you weren't really if you weren't really committed at that point, well, it was time to get out. Before we get uh, before I get uh, Sam to ask you a couple of questions, sir. Uh, Herb, just a moment on the uh, death this week of Tony Blue, your your uh, teammate in 1960. Uh, 
a very, very fine runner, Tony Blue. He was a, he was a terrific guy. He and I had uh, some, some good races over 800 metres. Um, he beat me sometimes, I beat him sometimes. We didn't race that often, quite frankly, but I, I'll always remember the last time I saw Tony, it was at some Sport Australia Hall of Fame function in a hotel in Melbourne, and he mentioned something or other about Florentino's restaurant in, in uh, Lonsdale Street or wherever it was, and he said, the last time I went to Florentino's, I drank so much vodka martini, I fell down the stairs and nearly broke <laughs> And uh, so... Anyway, I said, I said, well, let's go to Florentino's. It was just in the next block to where the Sofitel Hotel was. So we went down there. And, yeah, you're right. We both got drunk on vodka and both fell down the stairs afterwards. So <laughs> he, he was a good, fun guy, Tony, and uh, always enjoyed his company. A good, clean competitor. Um, good bloke. Uh, Herb, Sam, mate, uh, thanks a lot for this uh... Now, Aquinas College and then uh, a good Catholic boy with six kids, I understand that. Aquinas College and then Cambridge, a master's degree in Cambridge. I venture to say they had a very strong athletic way about them, Cambridge in particular, would they not? Uh, it depends on who you're talking to, Sam. It, it, I, I started running in the days where British amateurism was... Uh, I say, old chap, you know, don't you think you're overdoing it a little bit? I mean, this is the third time this week you've trained, Dash. I mean, come have a cup of tea. I mean, that was the way that the old English guys would talk about it. Uh, so that was the environment of Cambridge, basically. There's none of this uh, real tough guy sort of stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, they, they had a tradition of athletics, of course, with uh, the name of that movie where I ran around the Trinity College Square. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now, uh, now, the name of that movie, uh, the famous tune that went with it. Uh, That's it, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they're running yeah. on the beach. It's like, well, it'll come to us in a moment. Uh, Sam, you were going to say? Chariots of Fire. I was about Chariots of Fire. <laughs> Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie. Herb, yeah. uh, I don't know, uh, uh, I'm sure you'd be aware of it. But your time of 3.35.6, which broke your previous record at 3.36 when you won the gold in Rome, do you realise that that would have won gold at Seoul in 88, Barcelona in 92, and Atlanta in 96, which is unheard of, really, when you think of, isn't it? Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds fantastic on the CV. <laughs> what a great achievement. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, uh, unfortunately, I've got to just sort of bring that down to earth just a little bit. A uh, 1,500 metres run can be run as a, a man goes to the front and runs his heart and soul out and gets to the finishing line first and wins it. Or you can run a very tactical uh, 1,500 metres where you watch one another and you move, try and box somebody and all that sort of stuff. Um, so my race, I followed the Percy Serity um, edict of when you run, you run for excellence. So you're not looking to be clever or smart tactically. You're running to just absolutely give it everything you've got, the best you've got, you've got every time you run. So that was the way I ran my 1500 metres. But a lot of the guys in subsequent 1500 metres and still today, they'll run a couple of laps pretty slowly while they're jockeying for position and all that sort of stuff. So that's why they ran a slower time. Rather than my performance, you know. Herb, just one little one before Leon jumps in. 
Uh, you had a wonderful relationship with a mentor of yours, Herb, uh, Percy Sheridy. Now, in those days, Perth was regarded as being very unconventional. You know, the sand dunes of Portsea, when uh, prominent coaches like Fran Stample and those guys, they opted for a more conventional approach. And Herb was, uh, Percy was way up there as a person, wasn't he? Well, he was, a, he was an eccentric, there's no doubt about that. Um, I remember 1958 where we ran a mile in, in Dublin, we broke the world record. And um, after the event, the next day, I think it was, the Irish, uh, the Irish was run in Dublin, the Irish held a function. Um, and the, the mayor got up and made a bit of a speech that went on and on and on. And all of a sudden, there was a curtain behind the mayor on the stage. So all of a sudden, you could see a hand come over the top of the curtain and then another hand <laughs> come over the top of the curtain. And then Percy's head came up and he's doing tinder bars behind the, behind the mayor. And the whole, the whole thing fell down in a bloody great heap on the stage floor. Um, so that was Percy. I mean, he was, very, he was always unconventional. But the basis of his knowledge and experience was not one of books or um, universities or anything like that. The guy nearly died with rheumatoid arthritis. He was in a terrible state. He went to the doctors in Collins Street, Melbourne, and if they couldn't do anything about it. So I eventually thought, bugger this, I'm going to deal with this myself. So I started to read books about human psychology and spirituality and food and all that sort of stuff. And he converted himself from a cripple to a guy who won the Victorian Marathon, I think, when he was 50 years of age. Uh, so all of his learnings came out of his own personal experience, challenging his own weaknesses. And, of course, what you're doing when you're a sports person is challenging your own weaknesses. You want to get rid of them all and have the very pristine champion that you can be, but we've all got weaknesses, and uh, learning to deal with them was Percy's skill that he passed on to us uh, in an inspirational manner. Great background for young athlete to get. Strange thing, Herb. Um, the last time I spoke to you was just about the time of the first lockdown for the uh, for the virus, and I rang you from the Perth Cerati Oval uh, because it reminded me to ring you, uh, and that's at Portsea. And you were saying then that you did your sprint work there. Of course, all the other stuff was on the sand dunes. The thing that I remember most about the Oval was. Uh, the next, the next day after this incident, I was due to run in a race at uh, Olympic Park, I think. And I think uh, it may have been Merv Lincoln and, and, uh, and Herb Elliott hadn't resolved who was the better of the two at the stage of the game. Merv was a great Australian 1,500-metre-mile uh, runner. And uh, anyway, I was running around the oval just having a, a, a sort of a warm-up and Saturday all of a sudden took off like a frightened hare he shot round the four laps down to the Portsea Oval there and he finished and he had froth, spit and froth running down the front of his face and he came to within an inch of my eyes and he just bore straight into my eyes and he said, you'll be able to bloody run faster of it but you'll never run bloody harder. So that was, <laughs> that, that was the way he worked out all the built-up tensions and all that sort of stuff before an important race. He'd go out and run the race himself before I did. Um, yeah, that's what I remember most about our time at Portiago. But we often used to train down there. It's a beautiful little enclave, amphitheatre with the natural surroundings around it. You probably felt like running yourself, Leon, did you, when you were there? No, 
<laughs> Surprise. <laughs> I could have swung around it. <laughs> uh, can we go back to Dublin? Um, uh, the last time I looked up that race, and it was a, a, a absolute gang pank full of uh, champion athletes, a couple of them are, are worth mentioning. You just mentioned her, um, uh, Merv Lincoln, who, who was a, a star, and, of course, he died three or four years ago, and I went to that funeral. It was a, he was a very active member of our Olympians club. Um, but the one that I wanted to mention was uh, Murray Halberg. Uh, Murray would be older than you, of course, wouldn't he? Yeah, Murray would have to be 86 or 87, I reckon, something like that. Yeah, right. and for those that don't know, he had a, a withered arm, and I think that was from birth. Uh, and he's just a superstar in New Zealand. Yeah, Murray's, uh, he's still alive. Um, he, he suffered cancer. Um, and uh, the, the last time I went to New Zealand, I gave him a call. Um, he, he sort of ran a furniture shop or something for those years. But he was well known not only for his brilliance as an athlete, where he won gold medals in the Olympic Games, but also he, he showed great leadership in uh, the way athletes could, can behave, and many of them do these days, in, in working for charity. Um, he started the uh, Murray Halberg Children's Trust, I think it was, for disabled kids. Yeah, the fun, fun for crippled children. Yeah, he raised an absolutely enormous amount of money. So, yeah, Halberg is a very interesting guy. The first time I ever went for a run at Ports along the beach just before the 1956 Olympics, and there was a group of Olympians that I ran with. And uh, I mean, I tried an unknown person. Anyway, running along the beach, and Halberg came up to me as we were running along. He said, you're doing, you're doing well, young fella. Um, the next time I ran against him was in a race at a cross-country event at uh, Collingwood in, in Sudley Park there somewhere or other, and it was a 10-mile run. It was about the seven-mile mark, and I was absolutely stuffed. I was hanging in there. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very painful. Halberg ran up alongside my shoulder, and he said, Dude, you sound pretty buggered, mate. And off he went and left me. That was really tight. So he was a tough guy, uh, but a very, very fine athlete. They had a wonderful bunch of athletes in New Zealand at that particular time. Halberg was one of them. Herb, the uh, interesting tactics, you know, when you're running a mile, you know, it's, you know, you, I look at a lot of those races, like uh, like everyone, I guess, but how important are the tactics? You, you, you now they've, you now have got pacemakers, you know, positioning terribly important. How uh, how prevalent were those issues in your day as compared to today? Um, it comes back to um, running with excellence. Um, and so you didn't consider yourself to have run excellently if you ran a tactical race where you sat in the field and then over the last 150 metres to go, you shot round them all in one. Um, that was a winning run, but not an excellent run. And um, the, the classic example of that, that Percy kept insisting on that, I ran in a uh, 880 yards, I think it was in those days, at White City in London. This is around uh, 59 or 60 or something like that. And I broke the, uh, I ran the fastest time I'd ever run for 800 yards, um, 880 yards. It was 140, 
148 or something, or 147, 1 minute 47. Um, and I beat the Poms. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, I was feeling pretty good about, about all that. And Percy came over and said, I've organised another race for you. So what, mate, I've just come off the bloody notes that I have. It's about 30 miles away. So we got in the car and off we went to this race. I suspect Percy was making a bit of money on my appearance, but I don't know. <laughs> That's probably why I so insisted about it. So we, uh, we got to this running track and I thought, well, I'll just, uh, there's a bunch of hicks, I'll, I'll just uh, run around here and just take it easy. I'm not, I'm not going to try. I just, just had a run. Anyway, unbeknownst to me, Percy got the rest of the guys I was running against behind a shed somewhere. He said, can any of you blokes here run a 50-second quarter mile? One of the blokes put his hand up. He said, here's five quid. Go and do it. So uh, the gun went, and uh, I just sort of ambled out, settled down comfortably and looked up, and there's this bloke about 100 metres in front of me. Um, he was the man who was going to do the fast first quarter. Um, I eventually got him, and I won. I, I ran a slow, a time that was maybe 0.2 of a second slower than the, the Commonwealth record I'd run three or four hours earlier. So that was Percy. Um, he was aware of my mind saying, you can rest after this great event. So just, just, just march. Take it easy going through this race. Uh, and he, he stopped that. Uh, he, he always insisted on excellence. So that's, that was the hard way of learning the lesson. Now, Percy's got a uh, the oval at uh, Porty uh, named after him. You've got a port named after you, and Sam, it's not a fortified wine; it's a port. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Leon. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that question. No, raised that point. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, that's a port at port port head port uh, headland. Yeah, your metal screw port is called the Herb Elliot. Wharf or Port or something. Um, Andrew Forrest rang me up and he said, hey, I've named a port after you. I said, mate, I don't even drink this stuff. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Mentioning Andrew, uh, you've got a very close relationship with Andrew Forrester. In fact, you sit on his board, I think, uh, but you run his charity as well. So you're fairly philanthropic now in these days, Herbert. Uh, we all do our bit, I think, don't we, you guys do your bit. Everybody does their bit as best they can. Um, there are people who are – we're very lucky people. Um, I know that uh, if I was on the deathbed at the moment, I'd look back on my life and think that was fantastic um, and just be comfortable. And there are, are people, other people who can't say that, uh, that they have incredibly challenging and very difficult lives and they're in – dark alleys that they can't see their way out of. So, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's right, if you can, to try and help those people. Um, so we all do a little bit of philanthropy, but not the, the, to the scale of Twiggy Forest, does it? <laughs> he's, uh, he's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars every year to, uh, to charity. So they're quite remarkable family, the forests. Yeah, what was your uh, original connection with Twiggy? Was he an athlete? Now he, the Athletics Australia was in real trouble um, and uh, the board, the, the national board, was made up of people representing their state. So when they gathered together, instead of thinking about the totality of athletics, what they did was they, they, they felt that their job was to defend the interests of Victoria or Western Australia or whatever. It didn't work. The board did not work. It had no inspiration, no experience, no 
no general direction about it. Um, and so one of the big auditing firms did a, did a number on it, came up with a new structure for the board, um, and Peter uh, Twee was approached um, to become the, the president of the new board. So that's how I met him. Um, I was invited to go uh, by him to go to a strategy meeting up in near Bower or somewhere or other. Um, Alan Jones was there, Herbie was there, and there was a guy from PwC, the accounting firm, was there, and Andrew and the family, and we started to try and uh, structure the strategy that would take for the sport forward. So that was where I first met him. I got invited to join the board of uh, Athletics Australia, which I did, um, and I gained a respect for, for Andrew. He was our president, and he seemed to gain a respect for me. And when he brought us your medalist group up, he invited me to become a board member, uh, which I did. And I was, uh, served on board for 13 years. I ended up being chairman of the company for a while. Um, so it was a wonderful experience and something I'm very grateful for. The name Michelle Yazzi. <laughs> Uh, a great runner. Yeah, he was uh, a good bloke. I, I mean, he's, he's, he speaks as much English as I speak French. So uh, we, we just smile at one another. But uh, no, I, he, he, he had a very good career. Um, after my day, he went on. He was a younger man than me. Um, but I probably in some way owe him my world record. Uh, when I When I world record in the Olympic Games, um, when the gun went, this blue singlet of France rushed out and put a hell of a pace on. I remember getting about a lap and a half when he came near the finishing line, thinking to myself, who have you bugged? You know, you just <laughs> two laps to go. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I managed to get a bit, I ran a very fast time because the French bloke ran the first lap very, very fast. Um, and I found out afterwards the reason he ran laps so fast was that he hated the other Frenchman in the race, a fella called Michel Bernard or something like that. Um, Jazzy didn't like him at all, so he thought the best way to get rid of this guy was to burn him off. And uh, so he ran a very fast to beat the Frenchman. He didn't give a stuff about me. I was very much second <laughs> as he was concerned. So yeah, it's good on us. I don't, I don't. We don't keep in touch with one another, but um, yeah, it's good great yeah. Hey, one of the great yeah. conundrums, are, one of the great conundrums I reckon in Australian sport is way back in 1960. You were such an inspiration to all Australians in every shape or form, but particularly in the field of athletics. Why has Australian athletics failed to take the next step? particularly our athletes on track and field. They've been very, very disappointing on the track. Why? You know, if I had the answer to that, I'd be the greatest coach in Australia, if not the world. I, I, don't, I don't quite understand it. Um, I do think that in the middle distance events, uh, it's got to the point where our young people, our young Australian guys, um, have... Did, they become uh, scared of the Africans. They believe that, uh, that the Africans are born and gifted in a way that won't allow the Australian blokes to beat them. And of course, that's just rubbish. I mean, they're a human being. They, they breathe. Um, they, but when, we, when I was running, we used to say, African guys, no stamina. 
is the other way around. Now the African guys at the wide place, no stamina, and uh, <laughs> we have a, a mental situation uh, where we don't believe that we can do well. Um, so that's probably part of it. But yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I think um, I, I do believe that we have the talent to be as good as anybody in the world in pretty well anything we choose to do, uh, and that includes athletics. So. If, if I'm right and we're not doing that, something needs to change. Um, I'm not too sure. I don't think I've yet met an athlete um, who I know trains as intensely now as I did when I was running. Um, they sort of they train hard, but not intensely hard. So I don't know, mate. I know when I've tried to talk to groups of young athletes, um, you see and you start talking about total commitment and... No yeah, soft society, soft society. Yeah, um, you can see they, they they listen for about ten minutes and then their, their concentration sort of wanders off to the side somewhere or other, and they, they, their their coaches don't support what you're saying. So I've talked about it. I don't know you know the name Derek Clayton. Derek was a <coughs> very well. Right he did two hours and eight minutes uh, in uh, in Japan. Um, uh, he and I talked about something in the last few years. He and I, t I talked about the state of Australian athletes, athletics and said, what about you and I um, getting together and volunteering our services to Athletics Australia um, and st just spend some time with the current day athletes with our attitude to things. And uh, he had the same experience as me. He tried in the past and people just got bored. Uh, some silly old fart type attitude. So... Uh, yeah, I don't know the answer. If I if I could help, I would, but opportunity is not there. Uh, Derek's a great member of the Victoria Golf Club, of course, and uh, plays every week down there. Well, when he can. Um, Herb, w w can we uh, switch to you now, uh, personally, in your business career? You had a terrific career with uh, Puma, but immediately after Rome, I seem to remember you went off to Germany for some some odd reason no um, after Rome I went to Cambridge Uni for three years in England so I went straight from um, from Rome to England and, oh, okay. and I, yeah so I was there for three years um, yeah I just got tied up uh, <coughs> by almost by accident um, myself and a fellow called Bob Henry we wanted to set up an Australian edition of Runner's World. And uh, oh, what was the point I was going to make? I got distracted thinking about Bob Henry. Um, and this happens to me, mate. I'm getting old. I've forgotten what I was talking about there. No, Sorry. yeah. A, a black name Henry and uh, going to England. But you yeah. set up Puma. You set Puma up through a running organisation. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks. You brought me back to it. So uh, I was running around the uh, distributors of, uh, of international sporting brands in Australia trying to flog magazine space for ads uh, in this new magazine that we were going to start up. Um, that fell through. The, the owner in America pulled out, didn't put his money up. So that was the end of that. But one of the guys that I called on to try and sell advertising to was the boss of Puma Australia, a wonderful man called Ken Mitchell. And... Uh, when Ken found out that uh, this magazine 
fell through. He just rang me up and said, how would you like to come and work for Puma? And uh, I said, in what capacity? He said, uh, you'd be our general manager. I thought, look, this, this is pretty good. So, um, yeah, I, I, I jumped at that. Um, and started, so I was with Puma from 1981 to 1997. And uh, my final posting with them was president of uh, Puma in North America, so Canada and, and USA. So, yeah, it was a, a very happy association, and certainly for me and hopefully for both of us. Do I remember, like, seeing I got the German thing wrong, I'll have another go. Do I remember <laughs> you as a Tiger supporter? This is a very good time to ask me that question. If you'd asked me that four years ago, I'd have said, no bloody way. <laughs> I, I always found out to be a, to be a happy um, follower of, of a sporting team, just barrack for the one that wins. <laughs> and they, that's my team. Then you can't go wrong. But no, I, I was, uh, I, I first spoke to the Richmond Footy Club team. I, I think uh, Ray Dunn was the president at the time. Um, back in 19, remember that? 70, 1970. No, no, it was before that. It was, before, it was about 1964. I got invited by Len Smith to go in to uh, the, the, uh, meet the players and talk to them about the will to win and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I did that, and of course, the next Saturday, I had a look to see how they went. They usually lost after I talked to them, but we won't go into that. Um, and uh, they, they, yeah, that was uh, that was my first association with Richmond Footy Club. Uh, I eventually became a board member. I was a board member for uh, about a year or something like that. But then I had to go back to Perth to live, and uh, in those days, they, the, the footy club wasn't prepared to pay airfares from. Uh, Perth to, to Melbourne for board meetings once a month or something like that. So I retired from the board. But no, I had a very, very keen interest in, in Richmond and it's good to see them come good at last. Enjoy it while you can. Now, talking about money, Herb, um, was there any truth in the uh, story about you being offered 250000 bucks to turn pro way back in 1959 or, or something like that? Yeah, that's true. Um, it was yeah, it was fifty eight or fifty nine. I think it was probably fifty nine. Uh, an American promoter rang me up. Can't remember his name now. Um, and he said, uh, "Mate, uh, I, 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 eighty thousand pounds sterling. I think it was he offered me to turn pro." And I said, "Well, what am I? What am I, I going to do to earn my money?" He said, "Well, we'll have a series of races uh, internationally against Peter Snell." the New Zealand guy, um, and any other earning capacities that you've got, if you can sing, I'll put you on the stage, I'll make money out of that. If you can sell Kellogg's All Brand, or, uh, I'll, I'll get you selling Kellogg's All Brand, and blah, blah, blah. So he was, he, that, it sounded a little bit interesting, I must admit, um, but... Uh, I think it might have been Larry King. Larry King, I think he was. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit like him, doesn't it? Anyway, that, it, it's, uh, we found out that the guy we said put up $30,000 as, uh, as guarantee or surety, um, which he couldn't do. So we told him to jump in the lake. He then uh, sued me for breach of contract and we had to go to court in Honolulu, believe it or not. Um, so the Athletics Association of America uh, got an offence lawyer for me and we took on this bloke. Leo Levitt was his name, 
and um, uh, yeah, they lost and I won, as, as was right, rightly so. I never entered into a contract with him at all. So, yeah, there was a lot of money in those days, mate. It's, it's, it's uh, mm. could have been millions of dollars in today's money, yeah. Would they, did the gold medal translate into, obviously, a lot of commercial, into a lot of wealth? Herb, in the 60s, obviously, set you up pretty well. Um, no, there was no way it set you up other than enhancing your reputation, Sam. Um, people, like if you're in the business of selling yourself, um, people wanted to meet you because of your record. So you, yeah. it, it was easy to open doors. But then the way you behaved after you got in the door determined whether you got the business or not. So That's right. Mm. It, it, it got you a start. Which you, which you could take advantage of if you wanted to. And I, I certainly did. I, I was helped enormously by, by, you know, by, by record, people wanting to meet you and help you and support you and all that sort of stuff. It was uh, people were very kind and they get a bit of a kick out of meeting people. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was no, just no direct way you could get income out of running in those days. You had to sign a form and when you wanted to compete the Olympic Games, if I remember the, the quantity uh, correctly, you had to sign a form that you had received nothing more than $2 for, um, <laughs> for a trophy or something like that. And uh, when I, I remember going to America to run, and I was there for about a month, and the, Arthur Hodson, the guy who was head of Athletics Australia, said, you forget, you're not allowed to be away on expenses for any more than one month. That's it. <laughs> and... Uh, and you're not allowed to get a trophy worth anything more than $15 or something like that. He rung me a week before the three weeks, the four weeks was up and said, are you still there in America? I said, yeah. He said, you get yourself home, mate, or we'll be, be declaring you a professional. <laughs> so, yeah, there was no way you could make money out of it, really. Now, Herb, uh, what influence, and I, I guess it was a lot, uh, was the fact that you were able to, I think your old man or the family generally, uh, got you to Melbourne for the 1956 Olympics, and you had the, well, uh, I, 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 the joint, because I, I was in the stadium the same day, uh, that uh, Vladimir Kutz uh, absolutely cut Piri apart and won either the five or 10,000. Of course, he won both. Um, so that obviously was a, a, a very big influence on you. But did you have a, an Australian hero, a Landy or, a, or one of those guys running around the place? Uh, Johnny Landy, um, I don't know whether I whether I'd use the word hero. I don't think, I mean, I personally sort of talked to you about other people and your relate, what you were, what other people are and all that sort of stuff. Didn't really allow for the word hero. Um, respect, the person to respect uh, is probably the, the word that would be used. And yeah, I had uh, John Landy definitely uh, was the guy as far as I was concerned. I was still at Aquinas College. I wrote him a letter. I don't quite remember what inspired me to write a letter. I think it was in the time when he was trying to be the first in the world to break the four-minute mile. So he had a lot of publicity, and I was the best mile runner in the in the West Australian uh, school system. So for some reason or other, I was inspired to write a letter to John Landy and ask him about training. I got 12 pages back. You know, this guy so generous with his thinking and his time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was John. He, he was a fantastic fellow. And I enjoyed meeting him on many occasions after that. 
and what a wonderful job he did as um, the governor of the state of Victoria. I mean, he was a he was a good guy. He's um, you know I, I believe he's still alive and well, so or at least alive anyway. So happy. How is he going? You know. Uh, well, he's living up a castle, Maine, and uh, in retirement, of course, and uh, uh, struggling a little, but he's uh, he's still with us, and uh, that's a good thing. And so, yeah. uh, yes, he's a wonderful man. Um, well, now a couple of other things, if I could just touch on the on the business side of your life, and um, uh, one thing that you did, and I don't know how you got tied up with Portland Cement. I think it was Portland Cement. And, and and that really, Sam, got indirectly Herb Elliott tied up with the John Wren group uh, who ran all the THBs, et cetera, in Victoria in the <laughs> 1930s. And, and it, was a, it was a sort of a, a tenuous sort of link, but through Sugar Roberts, who was, <laughs> who was John Wren's, John Wren's right-hand man. And, of course, well, Sugar Roberts' son, Sugar Roberts, uh, and Herb were great mates. You're not trying to tell me that uh, the great Herb Elliott has got a skeleton in the closet, Leon, have you? No, no, I'm saying there is a connection between... And anyway, I'm not John saying he's skeleton. I'll tell you how the connection arose, so I can see that raise the issue. Um, uh, I, I worked for Shell Company from 1955 through to 69, I think it was. Another fantastic company for me, but I was I was had a, had a national position of, of polypropylene plastic, and uh, if I, if I wanted to, to get decisions about pricing or anything like that, you have to send off a bloody telex to uh, the Dutch people and to the English people, and they wouldn't reply, and they had to follow up, and I just got fed up with dealing with overseas people who were just inefficient. I thought so. Anyway, I got angry about that. Thought, bugger this, I'm going to work. A company that is Australian rather than international. So that's how I joined Australian Portland Cement. Uh, whilst I was working with, them, I was the national sales manager. As I was working uh, with them, I got a phone call from a doctor one day, as a cardiologist, uh, Morris Rosenbaum or some name like that. Um, <laughs> he said, I'm running, uh, I'm thinking of running a clinic for people who've had heart attacks. Uh, and I'd like you to if you get involved in it and you can teach them how to jog and get them to start jogging. Uh, and, when, and those guys particularly, probably still today, if you had a heart attack, you're, I mean, you're scared shitless for bloody doing anything that's going to give you another attack. So to actually get them from being uh, sedentary to, to running, that's a huge leap for them to take. Um, so, I got involved in leading this group of, I don't know, about eight or nine guys, and we'd meet twice a week, and we'd, we'd run and jog and talk and all that. Sugar Roberts was one of those guys. Sugar had had a heart attack, and he was in that group, and um, that was how uh, I met him, and that's how I ended up with uh, Australian Portland Cement, because that's where he worked. Yeah, so, great bloke. I'll tell you, they were good, he had a good group of guys around him that they used to... Uh, yeah, sure, sure is, mate, was it? Who was the guy who was the uh, Collingwood Footy Club coach for years and years and years? Ern, John uh, McHale, Ernie. Oh, John McHale, yeah. Yeah, Jock Jr. was in his group, and uh, they, were, they were a good group of guys. They were. Herb, uh, uh, just uh, quickly, 
Uh, see, you're a man of letters as well. I think one of your favourite sayings, you got three great little uh, cliches out there. Your greatest stimulator was fear. Is that what, fear of losing or fear not performing to the optimum or fear of what people might think about you or what? Uh, fear of failure, Sam. Um, I've, I've figured out that if, if you uh, really are committed to something, all your heart and all your soul, and that you want to really make that work, um, and you, you do all you, that you, you, you can possibly do, and then the test comes, and the test is tomorrow. And this is, you've been working on this, buddy, for four years, and tomorrow is the day when you fight, whether you fail or pass the test. That's when you have It's the fear of losing. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a very, very motivating thing. Now, I, I always experienced um, this, what's the word, disbelief. Uh, I was never 100% certain that I was going to win a race. Some people say, oh, no, I knew from... I knew I was going to win. I never felt like that at all. I always had some doubt, and doubt and fear drove me uh, in the race. So it was a very useful emotion to have, provided you convert it into a positive action rather than into an action which shuts you down. And, and I'm not sure how how uh, people, I'm not sure whether people can decide that. Or whether they are that, I think that's quite difficult to try and work out. But uh, yeah, and I remember asking Richard Branson. So Richard Branson, he was talking somewhere, and at the end there was a question time. I said, "When you were pulling off your really big business deals, did you feel any fear?" And he said, "No, never felt any fear at all." So I don't know whether to believe him or not. But there you are. And one last one from me, Herb, uh, before Leon wraps it up, I suspect. Uh, I didn't touch on this purposely because I don't know if it was prevalent in your time, but in contemporary sport, because of the worship of the almighty buck, we see this insidious evil called drugs. I don't know whether they were prevalent in your time, and if they were, what did you did you come across it? And what are your views on it as we move forward now? Um, my view, an absolute bloody disgrace. Uh, I think anybody who's a drug chief should be put in jail. Um, they still, by, by getting first instead of fourth or fifth in a race because they were drugged, they've stolen uh, these days millions of dollars from the people who've got second, third and fourth in the race that maybe could have won it. Um, and if, you, if somebody steals millions of dollars, you put them in jail. No questions asked about it. You just bloody will do it. So I think we're too, still too soft on them. Um, and uh, I, I despise anybody who takes drugs um, and... My day, no, I had never heard of it. Uh, it was something we never talked about. Percy never raised the subject. It just never ran into it anywhere uh, until 1960 when uh, in the Rome Olympics, the weather was quite hot at the time. I can't remember what month it was, but it was bloody hot. And two Danish cyclists died from heat stress in the road race, in the cycling road race. And it was found out that they had um, speed in their system, benzodrine or something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but that uh, the combination of the drug and the heat kill them. And uh, I had no sympathy for that at all. Um, but that was the first I'd ever heard of it. And then it became very prevalent. And dare I say it, I lectured, got to talk to uh, the coaches from the Australian Institute of Sport on one day at their invitation 
and uh, I got, there was quite an aggressive environment uh, in the meeting, very aggressive environment in the meeting because all they were doing, every time I asked them a question, they were putting up excuses as to why Australian athletes couldn't perform. And one of the, one of the guys in the group said, he's a coach, and he's a well-known coach, why don't we take on, why don't we take drugs? Why don't we do drugs better than anybody else in the world? Then we can win. <laughs> and I remember just saying, I just said, mate, if that's the way people are going to work, um, I will recommend to the government they shut down the Australian Institute of Sport tomorrow. So that was like the environment. It was a very, very challenging environment that I was in at the time with these, with these guys. And it was amazing to me that some of them were prepared to accept and support drug taking by athletes can't have it that just it defeats one of the main things about the goodness of sport indeed uh, Herb, just to lighten up a bit on on drugs um um wine is a sort of a drug uh, what sort of wine do you like uh, are you a shiraz man uh drug uh wine uh Drug, you've got to really like your wine to be able to call it. I, I can see you salivating, Leon. It, 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 it's just little bits of drool dripping out of your mouth. In this. <laughs> no, no, frankly. Yeah, sure yeah. Is your guy, you can see it. Uh, you just come out of rehab, Herb. <laughs> we want to send you some wine, and I don't want to send you the wrong stuff. So uh, uh, if Shiraz is your go, uh, we'll send you some um, Mitchell and the Print. You'll love that. And I'm sure I will. You don't need to do that. I'll have to just check my amateur status to make sure it's okay. <laughs> now, that guy's no longer with us. Uh, Herb Elliott, it's been a great pleasure having you on our uh, Sport and Life program, and we really do appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Nice talking to you. Look after yourselves. See you, man. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye.